0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's another conversation with Agility by Nature. I'm Ian Gill and I'm hosting today. Um, Really looking forward, as always, to today's guest. We've had quite a few um, coaches coming on and today we've got a veteran of change and transformation. Change is hard. There's a lot of things to be bear in mind. And when you hit the scale, the change from a large organisation to be an agile organisation is Nothing to be underestimated. Today's guest can talk us all through that and gives us the inside track on how you deal with those challenges. I'm very pleased to introduce from our friends at Agile Centre, John Spruce. Hi, John. How are you?
1: I'm very well. Thank you very much, Ian, for having me today.
0: More than welcome. Always pleased to see a real practitioner. I like it when the real practitioner is here. I mean, it's all good talking about the theory, but then when you're confronted with the reality of change and boards and organisation, get uh, yeah, how do we make this work? How do we help them? I was just snooping through uh, LinkedIn like I liked. You started in the army. Um, then you had quite a long range of roles in sort of marketing, advertising, and being uh, exec producers. Some really good gigs in there, actually, and you were AKQA. And then you sort of morphed more into the agile coach. Some really large-scale changes there as well that you were working on, particularly in the finance world. Lloyd's. And um, Aviva, Barclays, substantial big organizations. So, one thing I do know about large organizations, you need a lot of resilience. Do you think you being in the army, I know it's a short time in the army, but do you think you learn a lot of resilience for dealing with transformation?
1: That's an interesting, interesting reflection, actually. Yeah, I think so. I think I. When I was an avionics engineer in the army I, I I was trained in a different way i suppose to and and there's a there's a there's a huge misnomer about how military training and and, yeah. and the command and control nature of the military um, is kind of very much just people moving swathes of other people to other areas and everyone has to go up and down the line actually what what happens in the modern military is it's all about um getting people to um make decisions closest to the information it's about giving people intent and servant-based leadership so there's a there's that kind of stuff carried through and when I went into organizations where there was that kind of really rigid kind of structure um it felt kind of weird really and it felt sort of stuff that why are we getting all this red tape in the way why is all this stuff not allowing us to be as nimble as we can be as agile as we could be I suppose the that initial kind of experience has kind of pushed me through plus i'm not really scared of having the difficult conversations yeah. so i'm not generally scared of those kind of things and actually when i was working in in media and marketing um it's kind of it, it kind of helped me clarify the stresses and the pressures that the teams are under yeah and actually going look it's just the banner ad guys it's gonna be fine it's just the <laughs> website it's gonna be fine don't worry about the print ad it will be fine and so being able to be empathic and understanding that actually those stresses that people were under um, were, were difficult. But actually the stuff that I kind of brought back from that early part of my career um, really helped sort of cement that, you know, be conscious of the context you're in and and don't be afraid to have the courage to sort of speak out. And that kind of that really rolled through most of my career, really, um, and actually into my coaching as well, because it's it's difficult to have hard conversations with senior leaders without being in their context um it's often challenging for them it's often a difficult conversation that challenges their worldview and if you can't come from an empathic view and also from the you know an understanding of the context of of, of that kind of area they're in it can be it can fall on deaf ears it can feel like you're trying to coach against somebody rather than with somebody um especially the big organizations where people have been there. 20-30 years Um, and they've kind of they've rose to the ranks of where they uh, you know kind of the the promotion ladder has taken them to and it makes it really hard for them because change is difficult anyway as you mentioned and and it's even harder for people who kind of have built their entire set of worth around that um, around the number of people that work for them around the size of their department around the size of their budget and so helping people along their leadership journey uh, which can enable the organization is actually like where a lot of the work I tend to do these days is it's less around <clears throat> points and sprints and retrospectives and more about actually how do we unlock the enablement in the organization um, with those leaders and so not being afraid to have difficult conversations coming from a servant-based leadership kind of mindset um, helping people understand their context has been really key so yeah, on reflection, it's interesting how that thread's kind of come through all of those different areas and different chapters of my career. has been a bit meandering, but I feel like it's given me a, a good understanding of of people and of change as well.
0: I mean, I, I, you know, um, very often I bump into uh, ex-army ex forces actually, and maybe project managers or, or whatever. Um, you always notice, whatever skills they may or may not have, there is that resilience, there is that you talk to them, they come back at you nice, easy, all the time. And you can tell straight away, oh, yeah, I'm dealing with army or I'm dealing with forces. And I think it was, in, it was important. But I mean, it's quite interesting. You went from the army, and it was Lynx Helicopters, wasn't it? Which, uh, I'm not familiar with Lynx Helicopters, but I should they need a fair bit of maintenance. Then you went into the sort of more media. And that can be fast-paced, bonkers, actually, bonkers, well, and very deadline-driven hugely deadline driven and
1: also massively siloed right so working in a marketing um space and i'm working for clients like uh let's look back in the early days it was working with clients like shell um, um when i was working the jwt and the you're creating lots of different kind of products uh, you're creating lots of different kind of uh, campaigns uh, which are global reaching so they're in multi-language multilingual as well you've got 26 languages and lots of different kind of products to push out and they've got to line up with deliveries of products, right? So products go to market. You've got to get that stuff in play. And the way that these creative agencies worked was bizarre to me. It's like you'd have the you'd have a glass box with the creative director and the art director, and you'd have the copywriter kind of team sat there, and you'd have lots of different kind of pontification and strokey chins and thinking about what the what the general kind of you know motivation is for this particular banner ad. Um, And then you'd have creative work and then you'd have a concept and then go all the way through to our director, all the way originally down to when we were building flash ads and and things like that back in the day and microsites and what have you for companies like Pfizer. And they would be doing all these kind of products, but the majority of the cost would be up in that upfront bit because the directors were extremely expensive Time to stroke their chin and think, well, what's my motivation today? It was very valuable work, but it was very kind of long. The cost of delay was huge. So it would take such a long time to get that idea through to something that's in production that actually you've used most of the budget in the thinking time so when it comes down to actually the crunch where you've got to create 40 versions of the same banner ad in 20 languages it's like there's no time for production to do that and so the the deadline side of things was kind of okay it was kind of okay to do that but then the drive behind it was really difficult for people to sort of shorten that gap shorten the gap in that production side give more time to production give more time to feedback yeah, because okay. actually, it was spent most time up front. So some of the work that I was doing, even back then, it didn't have a name for me back then. But I would, I would create that cross-functional team, like get the art director, the, the copywriter, get the the, the designer, the yeah. flash builder, the HTML guy in a team, in a pod, and I would, I would, I would, carve out that war room. Right. Okay. I didn't know. I didn't have a name for me back then, but it was sort of the work that we started doing was around that. And then in effect protecting the team to stop people coming in. So they would come into the room, people would come into the room to steal an art director or a or a, or a web developer. Can I just have in for five minutes? And they'd come in and see me at the at the end of the desk and they'd go, oh, sorry. And leave <laughs> <left laughs> away. Now I've got I've got a my thinking face can look very frowny. Um, and I'm and I'm not a um, you know, <laughs> like a softly, softly type person, I suppose, in some respects. Um, and so with more intimacy, <laughs> people coming in and saying, can I just have the web there for two? N- no, you can't. He's he's here. Now, what it meant is that we could become more predictable because the cost was easy to to say, these are full days and there's three weeks we're having these people in a room whatever whatever. Um, but the work was more predictable because we could all be in there. And um, one of the things we found is that people would just be constantly torn between three or four different projects and three or four different clients without the context of, uh, or the kind of the the impact being recognized of the of the context switching. Like, you know, they're losing so much time and effort that actually you've got one very skilled, very um, very accomplished um developer or director or copywriter. But because they're split between three or four different things, each one of those things is done really poorly. Or not as well as it could be. I mean not very poorly, but yeah. and when they dedicated to it, well the, the tone came across, the work came across and then kind of we start creating this tacit bonds in the team and You'd be like this group of people would, instead of being in the art department and the concept department or else. It's one team and they'd all go to drinking out together and they'd go for meals together and that would be the unit rather than their function. And that's some of the work that I found was massively interesting. It's, like, it's the same people, it's the same project of work, but to just reorganising how they work together like made it hugely different and made it fun primarily. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean yeah it's, it was kind of crazy and I kind of got I got headhunted from multiple different agencies pulled into different agencies my first my first role when I got in London from the northwest was uh, at JWT so my first gig in London if you like was as a producer working for one of the largest advertising firms in Knightsbridge with my office overlooking Harrods. And I thought well it's London things all right isn't it it works quite well <laughs> So, well, if all London jobs are like this, it should be amazing. I just seemed to lock out at a particular time. I connected well with the team, and it worked out well. And off the back of that, was pulled into other kind of programs of work from other clients. So I worked at BBH for a while, uh, working with Links and AX and, and those kind of brands, um, helping them with digital production. Again, that's like really, you know, the, the really big agencies, really big kind of delivery. But digital was very still quite young in those agencies at the time, so they still had this kind of notion where they get 2 million quid for a tv ad and maybe 20 grand halved off just a little bit for a banner ad yeah. and all that 20 grand most of it would be a would be a review meeting with the creative director and 15 other people so i kind of go into these meetings and i'd be sat in this glass box with loads of other people everyone's stroking oh this is interesting what would you do oh that's really interesting that's great and i had this app on my phone which basically i could put in the average rate of everybody that's in the room and then start a timer and go in the meeting because as a producer i was like being responsible for the cost of the project and all the rest of it as well as keeping the team together and whatever so the producer role is slightly different so project manager is you're kind of being more creative you're, you're coaching the team you're kind of keeping them together protecting them as well as that pm side as well so i had that, all that kind of stuff all going on i was thinking where's this budget going and everyone was putting their time against our project effectively <laughs> yeah. and the meeting cost five grand because like was an hour because they had 15 people and everyone wants to join into this new crazy meeting. It's like, we've got no budget for production. It's like, so we've got a crappy banner ad that we can't deliver anything with because we've all spent time stroking our eyes and going, oh, could we put laser beams on this? It's like, look, we've only just using in flash. What are you talking There's no laser beams. Oh, interesting. Oh, that seems very, very small-minded, very closed thinking. It's like, look, you've got no money. It's ridiculous. So they were still in that early days when they were kind of moving into... How do, we, how do we pivot into using more of the digital stuff? It's still very early, it's still very nascent. iPhones went out back then, for example, right? the apps we do doing back then with Java, Java mobile apps on Nokia phones and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and so it took a while for us to help showcase that actually going into these other areas and putting budget and putting time and putting effort behind that would make a difference. And they hired creative directors from, from digital first agencies and that kind of helped move the direction. But the same thing happened, it was like this, there in there there was glass, literally glass boxes of these in the atrium in Carnaby Street, or kind of down there anyway. And and floors where different people worked, right? So if you want an art there, you go up to the top, and you come down again, and, and you go up to the next one to get the copyright, and you come down again, and everyone come around it. And it's just like, God, we can do this better guys, we can. And so we had a really big pitch at that time for, for links. And I, and I pulled together a team, a cross-functional team that we worked crazy for like two weeks. And we came out with like 15 different major concepts for this new launch of a new product. And it's the first time we'd ever done it. And they put some real effort and thought behind it. And the creative director was, was really kind of digitally first there. And he, he, he recognized we need to put a lot of effort in there. But the main difference was literally not you know there was always crazy pitches happening all the time there's always kind of lots of people on it but the main difference is we locked everyone in a room and said right let's get this nailed everyone was aligned we visualized the work again post-its all over the place but wasn't called a scrum board because i wasn't calling it scrum back then yeah. it was just let's just visualize who's doing what and how do we run it and it was bonkers in the advertising world to be doing that kind of stuff it was always crazy busy like burnout was kind of rap you know rapidly approached it's always something you'd expect to see but the human humanistic side, if you like, the empathic side for me was about how to protect the team against that. Yeah. So working late, working hard, but you know there would be wouldn't be there would be times we'd be like, let's just work the weekend, here's some pizza, let's get there. But you can only do that for so long before the team like crash and burn, and you'd have talented people all just just really disenfranchised, really kind of not doing their best, and so shortening the days to normal days. And then focusing the effort and focusing the time, reducing the the, the work in progress effectively is what we were doing. And this stuff that we did was just amazing. And then we went into Unilever and did this big pitch for this particular thing and they were blown away. It's like, how many people are working on this thing? Um, We even got a point where we we built this remote control um, diffuser type thing. So we actually created, we actually got a nickel box created and inside it, we'd we'd done some some crazy stuff with like an Arduino type board and we we one of the creative developers and i we, we got to the bathroom just at the same time and as we were stood in, in the stalls going oh, i can't believe this is yeah you know, this is crazy or else we need something else we need this kind of something that's going to blow this up so in the corner of the room that little kind of automated timer that sprayed pssst, you know that kind of tss, tss, right yeah kind of sprayed out and we we're like hang on a minute, is there something we can do with that? And we took it off the wall, literally. <laughs> took a hacksaw to it, took it to pieces and said, actually, if we got an Arduino, but it was a similar thing. I don't think Arduinos are out at the time. It was a very similar sort of board um, that we put in there. And I said, if we can control it with some kind of remote button thing from an app, a flash app on the actual laptop during the presentation, we press the button and this thing could spray like a Lynx instinct or Lynx bullet kind of thing into the air. It blow their minds away. Yeah. it's not like we were saying like we could make this crazy idea where you you would put all these different scents in and into the app and you press a button and it would spray and it would mix and diffuse stuff but we just thought like could we do something with that and it was literally like cigarette packets in the back there cellotate blood and all kinds of stuff in there to train training but the outside box looked amazing and <laughs> um, but we know we realized that with the strength of the motor we'd only take three it could only do it three times per yeah. bottle and we'd have to then refill it with one of these small links bullet things and we got to this presentation, pulled this thing out, and it was sat on the desk on its own, no wires, no plugged into anything at all, The laptop coming to the thing. And we showed this demonstration of an app, click, click, click click Look at all these different things. It all creates a different sense. It was all very visual and very kind of sexy at the time. And then we said, oh, to the client, click this button on the mouse and just click, click, and the box flexed and the thing sprayed out. And he just went, this is amazing. And we were sat there, I said, and he actually said, like, put your hands on the table because I think someone's pressing the button and we all put our hands, literally put our hands on the table and it's pit. Press <laughs> okay. the button again again he said, this is amazing. That's it. We won it. Okay. And it, the only kind of thing is because we were given the space to be creative, but also kind of that kind of bond as a team. And I realized that that, that was the kind of the secret source was how do you create the connections with the people that, that you can allow for that creativity, you can allow for that feedback, you can allow for that growth um, and that kind of cross-functional you know, focused effort made a huge difference. When that's and that was like unheard of in, in that industry. Yeah. Because yeah. there is clear functional silos on each of the different roles. And if you wanted something from the art department, you needed to go there and you need to book a particular slot and have a particular kid. You might get a particular person. Yeah. And it was all just like there's just so much delay and so much yeah. like there's no way of actually getting that faster. And then I was kind of pulled in to to help um fix a few projects after doing that for a number of years and i got pulled in as like a fixer ultimately so i would go in and i kind of do a, a full-on you know kind of six months to a year fixing some kind of project that needed kind of realigning or, or sorting out in some way um, and i did a lot of work with nike i did a lot of work with beats by Dre, um and that was the kind of thing they'd pull me in and say right we need to fix this program work can you come and produce this and so the way that the first thing I do is like, where's the team? Where's the war room? Yeah. Let's get ourselves in one place. Yeah. I'm not messing around. I'm like, well, I'm, well, we want to sit over in our area over here. You can sit over your... It's all on the same floor, but no one can sit together. It's like, this is just not going to work. We need to get together. Mapping it yeah. all out on a big wall and then mapping it through. And, I, and then so now I'm launching Nike Football in 26 countries globally. And we're deploying it using early DevOps techniques, early kind of stuff. But the team are all working together and everything was automated and whatever else so there's a whole heap of stuff there we built iphone apps for a nike training club we built nike running there's a huge amount of stuff we did but the big thing in the uk and in portland when we we're over there and in l.a when we we're with beats is the people if we can structure the people around it it made a huge difference and so when i was working with beats and we took him from our initial project of just literally let's get their e-commerce website sorted out so they can people can buy beats headphones online that was the initial kind of that was the initial bit. right like how do you actually sort that out i said like, okay fine um we'll go in there and we'll sort that out we'll stop building the team around it and it grew and it grew and it grew we started doing some small ads and some big stuff and then some huge campaigns we kind of we took over the olympics 2012 wow. um we did a huge guerrilla marketing campaign around that which was amazing we did some huge influencer marketing that was all from our hugely creative amazing team all led by a A client who was very driven, but would change things at the last minute at all times. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, our client was also Jimmy Iovine, right? He owned Beats. And Dre was our client, ultimately. But we had a chief marketing officer who was extremely driven, extremely kind of knowledgeable and, and created this kind of vision of what we need to do. But if we didn't have a team that could pivot on a dime while a setup of a Times Square takeover was happening at three in the morning because the client didn't like a picture that had been approved two months prior we didn't have a scrum team if you like a cross conference team that could do something quickly then you know it would have kind of created a damaged relationship whatever else the problem that i found with it though is that because we could pivot on a dime and because we could change things very quickly is that we did yeah and it kind of almost uh create, it went the opposite end where we became hyper responsive and hyper um hyper driven in that area where a client would just change it it's like right let's change my dynamics let's do it, let's make it happen. Uh, and that created a different problem because the team were the team were highly engaged hyper performant. you know that kind of high performance team that you kind of want to see at the top of that, that team performance curve finishing each other's sentences, being the loud people in the thing. We'd have a, a floor in our offices in London, huge speaker that was on there with a shared Spotify playlist that everyone could put stuff into. And we even had our own, you know, our own um, theme tune effectively, which was, believe it or not, it was the most diverse team and the most coolest team that I've ever worked with. Uh, but Africa by Toto was the theme tune.
0: Oh, <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous.
1: But every single time we'd come on, that's it, it'd be very loud. You could tell the beats team because it was just a loud kind of cacophony people kind of lots of stuff but loads of work happening on a different floor it was very quiet everyone's yeah. headphones in and driven in yeah. and you can almost i use that almost as my litmus now for high performing teams like if there's loud banter if there's lots of connectivity if there's lots of kind of jokes and inside jokes and whatever happening you know they're kind of on that right trajectory If everyone's yeah. sitting around a desk and everyone's got their headphones on and they're concentrating, which sometimes needs to happen with yeah. focus. Yeah, if yeah. you're looking at a new team and everyone's not talking to each other or they're just doing it in a kind of robotic zombie kind of way, you know that there's some some dysfunctional anti-patterns have crept in and you need to sort of look at those. And that's kind of the stuff I look at. So by creating that cross-functional responsive team with a client who wants to change things on a dime, and like, for example, we've got a brief at one point to say, you know, this I, we, we want to do a shoot with... Um, Beats, uh, there were sports headphones, they were kind of over-the-head kind of sports wireless phones. And they wanted to do it with LeBron James. And he said, well, he's kind of flying into Atlanta, I think it was, or flying to Chicago. But he's there for a couple of days. Um, but we need to shoot it. So could we could we shoot this TV spot? And we're like, how are we going to do that? We're not even in country. Um, and so we, and what we managed to do is is convert an area inside the the hotel conference area into like a basketball court get him in there shoot it within a couple of hours he was bouncing around the basketball throwing it into the hoop and just before he kind of chucked it he went oh hang on a sec hey yeah yeah no I'll get on the flight no problems and then sort of threw the ball and it was a nice little small piece to post this thing out but we managed to turn the brief from the client into into shooting that and getting it into post within a week and a half and normally the stuff would take three months of planning and all kinds of crazy stuff right now, uh, we did kind of get to a point where we were doing a huge um, uh, show your, show your colour campaign um, with Beats where we had takeovers in New York and in Moscow and in Covent Garden. We had loads of kind of crazy stuff all worldwide. It was a huge campaign that lasted a long time. Big social stuff, big uh, event stuff, big kind of product stuff. It was crazy. And we actually ended up getting a big social campaign where we got people to put their own kind of stuff in online. And uh, when they put their stuff in online, uh, they would get chosen by the client and they could get flown into LA and be part of the next TV spot ultimately. And, and we did it all. But we had a whole mix of stuff. It wasn't just a TV spot. It wasn't just an event. It wasn't just this. We had these, uh, these, these big tents in the middle of Times Square where we had people taking photographs with a high, you know, a DSLR effectively. With an app that we'd created with the headphones on and whatever else. And they'd get a printout of it. So we had to create these printers that would basically immediately print out from the cameras. And by the time they've walked out of the building, their face is 70 foot tall on the side of touch. But we had to build all that That tech didn't exist. So we had to build it yeah. at the same time, building creative spots and creatively, you know, adverts and all the rest of it. And we had this cross functional team which were legendary. And, but the problem was, is that. The, one, the, the flip side of that is that that high-performance thing was, was on full tilt for such a long time as a whole team that effectively everyone got to burn burnout. As soon as the program finished and just been, everyone was like, okay, right, we need a breather before we can do it. In fact, we at one point we had to set up an office in LA because our client was in LA. And he would wake up 9 o'clock his time, 5 o'clock our time and say, right, guys, let's change everything. And we'd be like, it's the end of our day. Yeah, yeah, but I need everything changing. and So we would be doing double days such an often time that it made more sense to set an agency in LA to work directly with them for those changes they needed as it went on. And so the LA office was born from that, from that particular brand. And what we found is we got to the end of this campaign. Everyone was burnt out. Everyone was shot. It was so difficult because we've done such amazing work and connected so well and uh, and whatever. But there was that... That bit that we needed, that space that we needed, we kind of removed by being so, you know, kind of embedded in the client, working with that stuff, and believing that, and moving it forward. That actually, we kind of burnt ourselves out. And so there was this one of the creative directors. She's an absolute amazing creative director. She currently works in LA now with a lot of a lot of the music artists and stuff like that. She she works with Beyonce, Eilish and all the rest of it. She's she's amazing, and she. Um, right, that's it, the project's over, I'm disappearing now, I'm going to go over to Indonesia or somewhere it was, I can't remember some far-flung place with a beach and no technology and no TVs and I'm just going to relax and I'm just going to do that for you know, for a while, I think it was like she was like, I'm taking a month out, I just can't do anymore because we've been going full tilt for almost a year now and there was this song that we launched, the one the first round of the TV spot with by um, Ellie Golding called Anything Could Happen. And we we shot so many copies, so many times, this one bit of the thing that comes into the TV ad. It's, and it's her kind of going over and over again, this, this kind of screeching thing she does do in the song. And we, it's like, he, 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 he it's the kind of thing that happens. But we heard it like a million times. And we yeah. launched that song and launched her, her career, because of course there was Interscope Records own beats, and so we had access to all these stars and whatever else. And then her, she'd gone, this, this creator had gone to this beach in the middle of nowhere, sat at a bar in the middle of nowhere, this kind of beach hot bar thing, expecting to be like just away from it all. And on this tiny little 14 inch TV in the top corner, the bloody advert came on, did it? <laughs> <laughs> and she sort put a drink down and walked into the sea and spent 10 minutes just trying to. Dec- and it's like <laughs> the problem with global reach is like, you can't get away from the work God, that you do. You can't it was really fun really fun but the big lessons i've learned from that is it personally is the reflection that is that you can um is that you can burn out quite easily without recognizing you're burning out so how do you help support a team and how do you create that space around them um the cross-functional teams work well um and you can create a huge team tribe dynamic really easily by putting people together and by working closely on on things Um, and that feedback loops, the short you get them, the quicker you can make the right changes for those team dynamics and for the product. And so I kind of took that and realized I was doing that everywhere I was going. I was kind of coming in, setting up these teams, setting up the way to work and all the rest of it, going to, going, do you know what? I'm doing the work a lot here, but I could be enabling a lot more yeah, if yeah. I went into you know, kind of organizations that I could help them create their teams. Oh, yeah. And that's when I started moving further into that more formal journey where I kind of started scrum mastering and then kind of moving into agile coaching and then working with that organizational change to say, we need to create these functional teams. And this is the kind of, it's got a name now and this is the thing. But when I kind of got to those organizations, like the DWP, you know, like, like Aviva, like Barclays, like, like Lloyds, is that they tried a lot of this stuff at the team level. Like let's put a scrum master in and a product owner, let's put a team around them. But then they kind of sub optimize without realizing it. They kind of put all this stuff in place and say, right, now go faster, do things quicker, and do things cheaper, right? You're agile now, right? But the organization around them was slowing the whole thing down. It's the same kind of deal. like creating those silos and handoffs and whatever, not looking at the overall systemic issues that's causing a bigger problem. Um, And so it's like creating a Ferrari and putting it into a traffic jam. It's like, (laughs) <laughs> it's a very sexy looking car but you're not going to do anything with it because you're as slow as the slowest thing in the traffic that night and so that's where that kind of that moving into the enterprise space and having all that experience of all that kind of crazy work in a crazy environment with crazy deadlines and seeing the benefit of the team dynamics stuff, and then going actually all that stuff's well and good but without the enablers around them, there's no way you're going to be able to get that that benefit you can't get the value out of it yeah and, fundamentally that's that's the kind of work that I tend to, to to lean towards now, so the big organizations they've got these huge hierarchical layers they have got these lots of bureaucracy, lots of functional silos um and the teams themselves they're hungry to do the work well, but they could do a piece of work that takes a few hours, but because it's sat in queues for the best part of six months like it's your shortest sprint is six months yeah like it's the shortest time you can get out the door and so looking at how you can help create servant leaders create that, and that 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 kind of risk, of that risk, um, not risk averse, that kind of, you know, you want to have that celebrate failure but from learning perspective, yeah. that kind of environment where you're enabling success through um, honesty and openness and transparency and integrity and what have you. It doesn't come from just the team and just the scrum master without uh, approaching into the organisational systemic side because that's where a lot of this problem sort of uh, manifests and because there's no one there often in these kind of situations to reflect that back it's like oh we tried that agile thing tried that scrum thing doesn't work for us we're different we're different to everybody else it's like i've heard that
0: so many times we're special is the other one we're We're special
1: yeah it's like well no i've worked with organizations who are building fighter jets with stuff i've worked with organizations who are building mobile apps the same ones who are also building cars you know it's like you can use this stuff in very, very different situations. The problem is, is that quite oftentimes it feels like it's, oh, that's an IT thing. Go and do the IT thing better and just everything else will speed up. Yeah. And so a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment is facing into that business side and the product ownership side that feels like the poor relations would agree, or being that they often have the accountability in the budgets and whatever else is that they're kind of like, well, we do the Scrum thing on the Agile thing on the IT side, but the business side or the delivery side, but the business side is not kind of seen as like they need to change, they need to also support and, and help disrupt that. And often you need to have both sides of the same puzzle working together, or else, or else you just have that high performing team sat there, not be able to do anything, or do yeah, the wrong things like the
0: hamster wheel, isn't it? And uh, in the middle of it, I you know, I, ha- I have to say, what a fantastic description of agility. At the team level, yeah. I mean, I was just ticking it off, and um, I, I was just trying to take notes as you were talking. You were just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, there were there was storytelling, uh, visualization, um, servant leader, the energy, the co-location, protecting team, purpose, problem solving, cross-functional, uh, sustainable pace. Um, what other notes have I written? Finding the value, feedback loops, team working, um, and pivoting. Uh, at, if you want to know what a good Agile team looks like, it looks like that. Yeah. Don't worry about all the words and the like, it looks like that. And your face was alive uh, when you were talking about it. Um, and I liked the bit when you said, this meeting is cost. And I always think, how much is this sprint or whatever, this thing costing? Yeah. So if I'm putting, let's say for the sake of argument, I'm putting in 10 grand every two weeks. Am yeah. I getting 10 grand plus back is value? Um, and I remember working in a business where they've had... I wasn't working with actually. I was invited to have a look. I think they've had two years' worth of two-weekly sprints hadn't released anything. And I couldn't work out what the cost ratio to value. So that's the first bit, the team. Yeah. A couple of things that reflect in my mind, though, is media, despite its siloedness, and it does organise itself in very weird silos, I have to say, there is energy. They are not risk adverse in my experience. Um, they are. They're very happy to use technology. They're A-class buyers. You know, they don't care if it's a bit risky if they think they've got an edge. Um, oh, the other thing you did mention, by the way, so whip and contact switching, which in my experience, if you're going to do nothing but solve whip and contact switching, you're probably in a good place already. When you're dealing with banks and insurance in particular, that risk appetite goes down considerably. They are by nature risk adverse. They're writing a book that's all about managing risk. They also have regulatory issues to worry. I'm not saying marketing doesn't per se, um, but they have government regulations across the globe and what have you. So some people might be thinking, yeah, 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 it's easy to be agile in that media world. But in the real world of finance, how can you deal with you know, we've got to be responsible for the money, we're measured, we're audited, and we can't do anything unless we tick this box and the CSA and so How do you deal with that first of all, to, but but bring that goodness that we were describing earlier?
1: So having sort of lived through the, that side of it, that chapter of it, um, and then looking at these kind of, what people would often see as a, a, a potentially drab environment, kind of, you know, the, kind of the, 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 the pens of people and all the rest of it. But... Ultimately, it's all people, right? And everyone wants to be sort of creative in their own way. And I think Dan Pink's book on drive is really, really helpful. I often kind of lean into that quite a lot about autonomy, mastery, and purpose at the individual level. Yeah. Um, and I think when I look at the stuff that people all generally want, is that they want the autonomy to be able to make their own decisions, they want to be able to master their craft, and they want to be linked to some bigger purpose. And quite yeah. often, There is always learning and development available, so mastery is kind of ticked off. Autonomy, two degrees often ticked off, but actually the purpose is what's often missing, Um, a connection to the bigger whole about what they're trying to do. Now, you're right in some respects. um, In in fintech work that I've done with small payment providers out in Europe and what have you, the the pace of change is really quick. And everything's really interesting but in large scale banks and they're kind of talking about the atm systems for example yeah. at lloyd's and we're doing a huge amount of engineering transformation with those guys how do you make that quicker when it's based on 40 year old COBOL systems which are green screen yeah. but you have to write your own compilers for this stuff and even like to for, i mean i recognize that stuff but even 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 when i'm looking at it and i'm you know i've got no hair left from all of that stressful probably at some point um but um but talking about the, ki- the, the the guys you're working with like the bright kind of up- upcoming engineers in their mid-20s like they have no idea that this stuff is like you know the green literally green screen technology there's no there's no ui to it right it's probably written by guys that are still in the business because they can't get rid of them you know because well or they come back as very expensive consultants in their 60s whatever right um so, it's really interesting because you kind of see, well, actually, what well, the cost of delay is really hard there. You can't really rapidly make changes there. But I think there is this desire to still be able to respond to change quickly as an organization. Now, banks and financial institutes move money very, very efficiently, like a big oak bridge. You know, we've made, it was made hundreds of years ago and it does the job very, very well for a horse and cart. You want to put an articulated lorry across it, it's not going to fit and it won't take the weight. So, how do you organize around that? We what we would normally do is look to build keep the bridge going because it works really well, but maybe build you know a, a steel suspension bridge next to it to sort of take the next kind of stage. When you look at the kind of people, look at organizations, there is a risk aversion there. There is a huge compliance kind of issue. Um we worked in pharma as well, and the same thing with pharmaceuticals as well, right? Working with big organizations like um, GSK and, and and Pfizer. But what we tend to do is look at, well, where the bottlenecks, really? If you, map out, if you map out everything, like how long it takes to get something from an idea into somebody's hands, and you can map it all out as a big value stream, concept of cash. And I'm leaning into some lean principles and lean sort of stuff there, but in effect visualising that work all the way through, looking where the queues are, looking where the delays are, can make a big difference. And so you can optimise the team very, very well, but you sub-optimise the whole because you're not actually getting stuff out the door. And the compliance uh, regulatory stuff, audit control points, all the rest of it, we take a shift left approach with a lot of that. And we did a lot of that with, with uh, Lloyds, actually. Is like getting the audit people in, getting the compliant people in, shift them into the process early doors, and then writing the test to meet the compliance. So it becomes, it becomes transparent and easy and, and simple to do at any point in time, that everything meets compliance all the time. Rather than the queen kind of always thinking everywhere smells of fresh paint, the audit people always come in and everything's just so at the right point people have spent two weeks panicking trying to get there. It's like make it transparent and get rid of the fear so that in effect they're part of the team rather than extension of a, a gate at the end of the process. And then it becomes simpler because it becomes a, it doesn't become a checkbox exercise, it becomes a, oh, it's already been done so we can launch it. Anybody can check it anytime and launch yeah, it. The tests are all, yep, yeah, it's all fine. It meets the compliance. It's all done. And so by building that into the DevOps pipeline, but also building it into the process, getting the people closer together, makes a big difference. So there is an appetite for these organizations to change because large scale, huge global banks, if they don't move quick enough, then when it comes to the new technology that's coming through, they kind of disrupt the banks, all those kind of things, the fintechs out there. You know, the, the notion of a beta bank, in effect, where the individual chooses the products from all these different providers based on their own thing, rather than going to a single storefront and getting everything from one place, yeah. is the new norm, right? Yeah. Companies like Monzo, you've got companies like Square, you've got loads of different companies out there that are kind of doing all these kind of things. And so if they don't buy them, they need to respond to at least be in the same market as them, right? And so and a lot of the, the, the response to change is not because they don't have talented people. And it's not because they don't have the hunger or the wherewithal to do it. It's fundamentally the structure of the system that they're in, yeah. and the bureaucracy that's around that. So yes, there are risks, right? So making sure that everything's compliant, the relevant FDA compliance for for things like GSK or pharma. There's lots of FCC stuff required for for, for insurance and for for money. But the, a lot of the, a lot of those, you know, organisations are saying like you can have phase gates approach, but it's okay as well. For us to have iterative models that we're involved with they're opening the board the, the rooms up it's yeah. just that there's even a fear to that because they don't want to sort of
0: people <laughs> so one of the joys of turning off your phone is it stops the call the sad thing is your computer is still going to up the call instead. my apologies <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, don't worry and my, my partner simon voice i didn't i didn't tell him i was in the podcast so it's all my fault next don't time worry, it's
1: fine we can get rid of it in the edit i'm sure
0: <laughs> I will keep, he, he likes a name check he, otherwise he feels left out it's a name check yeah fair enough
1: <laughs> so, so so yeah so i think just to finish there is that the the bureaucracy is is artificial the, the 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 things that are in place that often slow the system down are artificial and i think part of it is um although they're very real is that they're still in the gift of the organization to change if you can pull in people like um the fcc to help with the audit checkpoints and the compliance and work towards it as if you're walking towards a test for a product owner then it becomes a bit simpler to have the conversation. Um, if you can reflect the cost of delay and say, actually, if we can reduce that and get things out the door quicker, then it's easier. But I think oftentimes that your conversation has to be at the right level. Yeah. And part of the stuff that we've talked about so far at the team level has worked very well because I was given the authority, given the time, given the space to basically get stuff done, right? Just whatever you need, let's get this sorted. In a bigger organisation, there are layers and layers of management and and bureaucracy and silos which get in the way. And so you need to have engagement at the leadership level to understand that they are part of the solution to change as well as that. You can't just say, go off and be agile, do the agile thing for us, tell me when it's closer, faster, quicker. Because you often get the kind of, the revert to type. I've had leaders in in large banks where we've been working where you have... um, this kind of misnomer of data right? kind of look at the the agility if you like in inverted commas of the teams we, mat- we put a maturity of how how the teams were performing in a way of trying to highlight these areas of support that they needed right yeah so so like actually these guys don't have a full-time product owner. so the intervention here is let's get them a full-time product owner. um but that dragged their overall score down and this particular cio sort of said well they looked at all the teams in this particular area of the personal bank and said, Well, these lower three teams, they seem really low maturity. Let's put them on a performance review. Let's get them out of the company. Because they're not performing as well as they could. Because his mindset was very much in this maturity level equates to productivity, equates to value, equates to whatever. Not as a servant leader, what do I need to do to help them move up? Right. Now, some of those teams are low maturity because they can't release every two weeks because they're in a cobol based green screen system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ATM machines can't can't be updated. you know. And to be honest, we managed to virtualize a lot of that. We managed to help those teams move into some really interesting spaces for automation using tools like Docker and and yeah. whatever. But I think the big thing is that without um, that support from leadership in that area, without the understanding and the coaching of the area, they just saw it as like a balanced scorecard and said, well, these bottom three people, well, standard stuff right that's what the big firms tell us look at the bottom 30 percent and get rid of it it's like or or <laughs> it's, it's job security not role security so let's let's keep the right people with the tacit knowledge and the and the investment in business and look at what we need to do to change the environment right so you know if you want that that plant to grow well change the environment and don't try and change the plant right it's it's about trying to make sure that you do that and that took a long time so so the the transformative nature of coaching with leaders can be quite quite interesting and quite quick it can be but oftentimes with organizations where they're really big that they have huge swathes of people that they kind of look for that they work with that they have been working in for a long time it takes a long time because there's a threat to that security of what their role is and what they know is new is, is true and so, and you can't coach people who don't want to be coached and you can't, you need permission to do this, right? And so the professional coaching side of things and that, that kind of my growth in that area, when I'm starting to work into those, into those uh, conversations with leaders is, is more now, less around how to create structured teams to basically get delivery nailed and create those tacit bonds. So I'm taking that and putting an extra layer on to sort of say, actually, how do I help this um this person this leader with all of their kind of already cognitive biases with all of their experience all their context and help them understand how they can enable as much as you know kind of disable that team in effect by by being the person who can help like not say get it done by tuesday work the weekend here's the pizza but what can you get done by tuesday how can i help it's a very different kind of conversation it takes a while and so not that you're a therapist or a counsellor, but you need to use the right kind of approach. Um, So more professional coaching I've seen, and I've not seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot more of a rise of it recently, I must say, in the Agile coaching community. But there are very few who do it well. Um, There's people who have been Scrum Masters for for a month or two, maybe a year or two, have suddenly changed their their name on LinkedIn to Agile Coach, and suddenly, you know, they are... Yeah, they double the day rate and they're into another thing. But the the problem without having the the war stories and the scars and the the understanding of how it takes to get to that point is that you could be ill advising. You might not be sort of the ethical side of it aside. You might still not just be doing a, a good job. You're not be adding value. Yeah. And so it's about being very aware of the human side, and that's kind of coming alive more for me in it, more recently last few years really. Yeah. And so I've kind of gone on a journey myself and. A certified enterprise coach which means i can look at organizational change and coach at the right level um i can train ICR agile kind of coaching i'm a train so authorized trainer for that and the, the tools we're using there are very from that kind of professional coaching area really it's like how do you help with active listening how do you create presence how can you use what frameworks can you use to ask the right powerful questions those kind of things and i find that that's really the interesting part because you can help as much as you know a lot of people advocate flat structures and all the rest of it in different organizations you still have organizations where you do have heads of or or leads or the books have to stop somewhere right And so if you can create an enabled leader there who can be an agile leader it's not in a big agile but in a an agile leader so they they get agility they understand how to enable change then you can put a huge amount of, of value into a business by just helping them change their mindset and moving away from that expert leader, I know everything. I have my own kind of mindset. And that, that, that kind of framework from Bill Joyner, that leadership agility framework, where you move them from uh, an expert leader and you help coach them toward catalyst leader, where they create the space for change and the psychological safety and, and whatever else in their teams and in their organization. And you can see that, that shift. So every team can become a high-performing team because they have the environment for that and the safety around it. A couple of my a couple of companies i'm working with now a couple of the clients they're very risk averse yeah you know um and, and even down to like there's one of which is a, a publishing house and there's a risk averse culture there now they're moving into technology a lot more and they're doing a really great great moves in that direction there's still this underlying kind of feeling of the old organization that's been going for hundreds of years where if you repulp you know, if it's to pulp, like 30,000 copies, because there's a few spelling mistakes on Facebook, it's expensive, right? And it's difficult. And it there's, there's a risk to that. They're less likely to, of course, right? Because they've got that in there. But that's still in the back of the mind. It's like, how do we support that? And so some of the work in that area, they've got the right leaders in place, coaching them in the right direction is really easy, but it takes time. And I think that that's one of the things that, the big reflections for me in this is that this stuff doesn't happen overnight, you know? Um, And oftentimes you'll go into organizations because they've tried it at the team level without any of the enablement around it, for leadership, for bureaucracy, for even like role descriptions. There's an aeronautical client working right now, they don't have a job description for the scrum master, but they've got five of them. But so they're worried that if they, those scrum masters then have a sense of fear themselves, if they come out of this program of work they're in and they move into another area, well, they're gonna go back into the old organization Yeah, and they're gonna—they're not going to be relevant. So how do we help that? So like, you know, very basic fundamentals. So what's my career path as a Scrum Master? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's not—it's not really often thought about. Like, we're going to do this Agile thing. We're going to hire a bunch of Scrum Masters. Well, that project manager looks like a Scrum Master. We'll put them as a Scrum Master, or whatever. um, Without the fundamental thinking that actually they need to be trained into. You know, there needs to be a concerted effort in coaching and supporting them into a coach. Rather than you know, there's no control there of the team. It's more of a coaching role, and actually, you might find that project managers become better product owners because a lot of that stuff in product ownership, with cost and risk and stakeholder management, is actually more in the wheelhouse of project manager. So, where does the scrum masters come from? So, you've got all that stuff to consider, but you but oftentimes there's big things around it don't, and that's where I find all that experience, all the way, all of the different chapters and those meandering <laughs> programs of work and those meandering apps and all the stuff I've done all over the bloody world. Um, comes back into play because I think actually um, I, I've seen how this can work and how it's crashed and burned in many different places because they've tried applying a, context, a, a framework over the top of their existing organisation without changing the context yeah. or they've tried to apply I've seen it work over there like, and, it's, and that's really great so let's just do it here without realising that the reason it worked in this other company is because their culture was completely different right? and it doesn't mean it's better or worse it just it was different I, and so if you don't understand your cultural competencies and, and, and the competing values inside your organisation and your leadership style, just applying and copy and pasting it from somewhere else won't work and it'll be very expensive. So there'll be a sunk cost policy, well, we have to make this work, we try to apply it. And so a lot of my thinking is around how do you be holistic about the whole thing? So how do you kind of look at the culture, look at the leadership? And so all that work is needed before you can sort of say, actually, before we get anywhere near this, we need to probably tackle this area first. How we create a sense of safety in the teams before we start telling them that they need to deliver every 12 seconds like Amazon, right? It's scary stuff. For the teams. They can't. There's no <laughs> DevOps pipeline, but quick, get stuff out the door as quick as you can. It's like, well, try it's something to, to get to that point anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I think the banks and you know, the big the big organizations, like the government are doing some really interesting things as well. Digital, yeah. uh, the digital uh, stuff in the UK government, digital carriage, that's really going well. GDS is great. There's some great stuff happening in Aviva there's some really great stuff yeah. markets there. There's stuff in Barclays with the labs we were doing, stuff yep. in Lloyds, yep. the same kind of thing. Huge amounts of stuff, and there's lots of hunger, and they're doing it well. And the fact that they're on the journey themselves, to use that over Hackney term, is a good thing in its own right. It doesn't mean that all banks are just going to be slow, but they've recognised that if they don't change and they don't start working with it, then these fintechs are going to steal their lunch before you know it, right? Yeah. Apple have become the biggest watch manufacturer in the world with Apple Watch yeah. in a matter of five years. They've now they've surpassed everything from a capital funding perspective. Tesla has got a huge market capitalization for their stuff and they've not been going that long for cars. They overtook Ford last year, total and all the rest of it, right? This new companies, these new disruptors can come from elsewhere and you're never too big to fail. And yeah. I think they're recognizing that. Yeah. But there's some extra stuff they need to do to help with that. And I can see the right hires coming in. I can see the right coaching happening with these organizations. It's just something that needs to be concerted. There needs to be a level of investment in that change and to know that that change will never stop. It'll never change. You see what I mean? It's it's not a thing. An agile is not a destination. It's something that you work on all the time to get there. I think that's the important thing. This year has taught us a lot about that, that when COVID hit, um, organisations could pivot or they could die. And some big organisations pivoted quickly. The big mortgage companies pivoted very quickly to allow people to get the, the breaks and to allow them to get their their mortgage holidays. And they did that within weeks, which meant that if there was a sense of urgency and a sense of demand, they could have done that in weeks, forever. Yeah, and yeah. in the in the months that followed, they all started slowing down again. The bureaucracy layers came back in again and suddenly programs are now still six to twelve months long. You know? So it can happen. The environment's there, the people are amazing. Let's 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 empower those people. But Oftentimes it's the bureaucracy and the structure of the organisations and the things that get in the way. And that's the bit that I really enjoy doing. John, I'm gonna stop you. Because I think we could I could ask one more question and
0: I got another and I'd love to ask you the questions again. But you know, just to reflect on what you were saying, thank you so much. I mean, you said some things I so agree with, you know, Agile is what they do. Yes, we want to change, but Agile is what they do, and they point to the IT department and off yeah. the Pointed to the development part of the IT department. Heard so many times the change has to be from the top. You have to get that buying. Jose Casal said something interesting to me not long ago. He said, "You just need to be patient as well." And you were saying it takes time. And we also you you very neatly dealt with the whole framework thing. Yeah. They have their uses. But you don't plump them on. But what I really liked was you know. What type of person do you want to... How, as a leader, do you? what type of leader do you want to be? Do you want to be the catalyst? Do you want to be the catalyst? And there was a nice view about outcomes, and I don't think that always comes out when people talk about coaching the executive team. And I think people can be a bit blunt when they say that, uh, without actually meaning, telling us what they really mean needs to happen. Experience really, really counts in that regard. So... And I can smell it all over everything you've worked with. Um, You know, I loved everything you've said there. Um, Really enjoyed it. John, we've run out of time. But if people want to talk to you about anything that you've raised, and certainly anyone's saying, well, I've got a large organisation and I'm patient enough to do do the big change. How can they get hold of you?
1: The simplest way, I think, for me is I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So go to LinkedIn. And search with John Spruce. So there'll be a link in, I'm sure, in, in the in the description. We'll, we'll put something in there for you. Yeah, me. that'd be great.
0: John, what a joy. Thank you so much. Really appreciated that. And I think if anybody's thinking about going to some sort of agile transformation, and you haven't mentioned any of the frameworks, but you get a very real sense of what the journey's like, I think this would be the podcast to go to. So thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to speak, to John has told you at LinkedIn. I'm also in LinkedIn. You can get hold of me there, or you can write to me at Ian.gill. Agility, by, agility by where we've got lots of content. Right, fabulous, John. In the meantime, looking at my watch, it's all oh, just after lunch, so I have to walk the dogs and then find out how much cheese is left in my sandwich. Not a lot, I've got the feeling, because I haven't done the shopping run. John, thank you so much. Hope to speak to you very soon.
1: Great stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. Take care.